Welcome to the Onassis Air Conversations. My name is Mirto Katsimicha. I'm a curator and cultural worker based in Athens and your host in this series of recorded encounters with the participants of Onassis Air. Founded on the principles of learning and doing with others, Onassis Air is an international research residency program in Athens initiated by the Onassis Foundation in 2019. They say that what happens in one place stays in that place. I cannot find a better way to describe all the things that have been happening inside the Onassis Air House since I first entered as a participant of the Critical Practices program in fall 2019. The truth is, it is not easy to transmit an open-ended process of relationing which is very personal and relevant to a specific place and moment in time. How can I then give you a glimpse into that process? Everything starts with a conversation. Throughout this series, I'll be speaking with the Onassis Air participants to shed light on their artistic practices and needs, as well as to reflect on ways of being and working together. In this conversation, I'll be speaking with Lydia Xinogala. With a background in architecture, Lydia works across formats and scales as a designer, writer and scholar, making buildings, interiors, objects, environments and exhibitions that explore the material affects of built artifacts in the construction of cultural narratives. She is a participant of the School of Infinite Rehearsals Movement 3, with a collective research focus on the notion of ecologies. Today, we will discuss bad matter as an active marker of time and the role of architecture in generating new building typologies as well as new types and forms of communal engagement and production. Lydia, welcome to Palidum. Hi, Mirto. Thank you for hosting me. It's a pleasure to have you here today and I have a fun fact to share before we start. I realized the other day um, I was looking into um, a journal that reads into cities called Desired Landscapes. Uh, it was journal number three. And uh, I realized that we had both made contributions into this journal. And actually, our contributions are back to back. I have not realized this. Yeah, me this neither. is amazing. <laughs> me I have to go back. You have to <laughs> wow. look at it. It's uh, It's great because when we... Um, when I wrote the text and I saw that your contribution is titled Landscape With and talks and it's a series of collages that you made right. about the shifting landscape of Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And um, my text was about a trip that I made in Cairo. And uh, back then we didn't know each other. <laughs> no, no. And I've read your text actually, and but I haven't place the name with a text with you and here we are now (laughs) yes I wanted to share that that's amazing Uh, so um, it I was thinking of what would be the best way to start our conversation today and I couldn't find a starting point and I think that's because I've been observing you and observing the way that you always work on more than one thing at a time Uh, Your practice is very multivalent. So I decided to start with a quote that I found in one of your writings. 
from uh, the time I've spent together, I feel that this encapsulates your research interest and practice. And I'm going to read that now. It's a quote by Isamu Noguchi. Ultimately, I like to think, when you get back to the furthest point of technology, when you get to outer space, what do you need to bring back? Rocks. <laughs> End of quote. Uh, I'm really glad that you bring this quote up because it's really one of my favorite quotes of all time and a good point to begin with. And uh, indeed, my practice and writing is uh, very much engaged with uh, rocks and geology in general, and we can return to this. Uh, but your observation that I work on different things is very accurate. So I trained as an architect um, in the UK and the US, and now I'm writing also a PhD in architecture. So all my background is architecture. And uh, for the past uh, 13 years, I lived in New York and taught there. Uh, but in parallel to teaching, I slowly started an independent architecture practice um, that is called ALOS, which is really a series of word games uh, that describe the nature and ongoing interests of my architecture practice. So it was in lack of better words how to describe the things that I do. I came up with these words, which is architecture, landscape, object, and stories are some of the things uh, we make. But it's also about aggregate, lateral, or strata, where the fascination with uh, geology comes in. Uh, it analyzes, learns, organizes, and studies, uh, or analog love of stuff. So the list goes on. Um, but I use these word games because I'm working on these different things. And uh, because my work, both the making of spaces, buildings, environments, and my research, uh, they both engage with material culture. So I am looking through my practice to embrace the present condition and uh, specifically the potential that lies on the ground to seek uh, for new types and forms of uh, communal engagement and also production of knowledge. And for me, uh, that is done through disseminating and reformulating matter. And we can get more specific, but uh, the natural sciences are for me a field of endless inspiration. And I often borrow concepts or analytical methods But not as a scientist, but more as an architect looking at the natural sciences in an expanded way. So to be inspired, but also to develop critical tools that can be used to discuss ecology in relationship to the built environment. So some examples are I've been writing on fossils as material specimens but also as uh, indicators of uh, various troubled ecologies, so for nuclear waste, uh, storage, a major catastrophe or climate changes or earthquakes, that all these events can be deciphered and read through the close examination of rocks and also of soil and their interpretation. So my current uh, also PhD research is in the history of uh, thermal bath buildings in Greece. And I've developed this methodology that I call petrography, which is, you know, Petra and Graphia writing through stones or recording through stones. 
And uh, I'm writing this history starting from the ground to the water to the body. And I'm looking at minerals being simultaneously a medium, but also actants for various transformations and at the same time sites for care. And uh, they are non-human agents, but in they have different forms, right? They have seismic, volcanic, tectonic, healing, muddy. Um, but they, I'm looking at their capacity to mobilize different apparatus, like the scientific apparatus or a medical, political one. So um, I'm telling you all this to say that uh, the way that I try to approach architecture is as a material practice, but also as a time-based medium. And working in these diverse methods gives me a way to imagine possible worlds, but at the same time engage with the messiness of the present that we're confronting. I found really fascinating the, um, the, uh, your use of petrography as an approach and as a meta-discipline, let's say, for your PhD. And I'm very much drawn by your perspective uh, in the metamorphic and non-static qualities quality of the of rocks and how all the earthy transformations can offer us a better understanding of the past and present. Actually, in past conversations, I've discussed with other participants about the need for a renewed attentiveness to the present. But I'm thinking, what about the future? How can architecture and studies in the natural and built forms that surround us generate new forms and infrastructures as well as communities of care? Mm -hmm. um, that's a really great question, one I ask myself daily. Uh, but to go back to the beginning, um, I mean, rocks embody energy. So a close look at rocks can tell us about the history of the earth. So it's really, after all, through the age of rocks that we know how old the earth is, right? So they do embody histories of a transformation of matter. And my field, architecture, is the shaping of the built environment. So I also think about matter and form in a similar way, because they are about transformations through time. And so past, present, and future are bound together Uh, with the stuff that we find on the ground, whether these stuff are buildings or whether these are rocks, but they all tell a story. So um, I did a project some time ago uh, titled The Dark Ecology of Magnitogorsk, and that was inspired by um, the philosophical thinking of Timothy Morton. So he writes about ecology and nature, not as this other that is outside, but rather as an environment that we're all in together. And he gives a great example, that of Sherlock Holmes type of detective who is um, outside of the story and he's following the clues. Um, but he argues uh, that we should be more like the noir detective who is inside the story. And maybe some of the clues are him, you know, he may be the, the suspect. Um, so this project, um, the Dark Ecology of Magnitogorsk, um, is about creating a territorial concept on the wasteland. This idea that you have a terrain that typically conveys something that's unwanted, that's exhausted, and that is useless. So it's a, it's a project about mining and uh, post-industrial mining 
terrains. And uh, the project aims to rethink uh, various emerging ecologic strategies of remediation, really the act of cleaning up, uh, but often the attempt and the anxiety to erase all these material traces of production. Um, but I'm interested in the project to explore also a terrain of ambiguity, of what is natural, what is man-made, what is clean, what's dirty, what do we consider to be unwanted or desired. And it rejects all these polarities and inste instead embraces this messy whole uh, as it comes with various material or chemical or so-called natural manifestations. And by embracing it, uh, the project kind of reveals surprising architectural potentials. Um, so by engaging with this degradation, I take on architecture and infrastructure as uh, time-based and also chemically induced operations. And uh, I recognize the potential and uh, the possibilities out of cleaning out, but I also engage with what are the byproducts of such operations as a new way to build. So I would say that care here uh, takes the form of maintenance and the form of paying attention to things that are typically unwanted. And why did you name it dark ecology? Um, the the the. The term is actually coined by Timothy Morton in this book, um, Ecology Without Nature. And it's also something that then Zizek took on and also wrote about. So mine is the dark ecology of Magnitogorsk because I'm writing about this Russian city. But the concept, it really speaks about, um, per perhaps that's where the dark comes in, that uh, what we have done in the environment is not reversible. So one has to acknowledge that, to embrace it, and then see how one can operate uh, moving forward, rather than trying to erase or pretend that by certain action, everything can go back to a form that can never really be attained again. I see. In a way, we need to uh, build new narratives and new imaginaries to move forward. And uh, that ties a lot with my next question. Uh, your practice takes different forms that include writings and exhibitions. And it is my sense that fiction plays a crucial role in your practice. Would you like to elaborate on that? Yes, that is really spot on, Merto. <laughs> uh, fiction is at the center. Um, so my work uh, operates strongly around fiction as a way of writing, but also in the um, representations that I produce to design projects. And it's a way to engage with various processes. So again, like Alos, the S in Alos is about stories. So it's about story rather than history. Um, and even in architecture projects, um, I like to employ fiction about as to how one can live in a space, write a story about how the space will change through time and through use. And uh, also in my theoretical work, I try to avert from academic uh, styles of writing, but rather use fiction as a storytelling device, which allows me then to engage with serious questions of history and theory. But I find that it becomes more expansive this way because a story can incorporate multiple viewpoints. 
And uh, back to some of the architecture projects using collage or models or videos rather than, let's say, the typical photorealistic renderings is one way to visually construct fictions. And uh, this is not a device for me to escape reality, but rather it offers an expanded understanding of what the project is, uh, what it can be and what it can generate. So that's often a conversation I have with the team or students, you know, that renderings are flat and devoid of any imagination. And uh, fiction is really about generating a creative imagination and the potential about an idea or about a project. I understand that your practice includes a lot of research, uh, but you also have an architectural practice where you're actually commissioned to construct or take care of buildings. And that's where, f- where functionality comes into play. So... How does an ecological thinking inform your practice? Um, First, thank you for the super accurate reading of my work. This really (laughs) means a lot. Um, But to your question, um, indeed, uh, my practice involves building and designing, but also researching and writing, and that's all in equal, equal parts. And that's intentional. Uh, And in that respect, I'm trying to create um, an ecology of thought and values that go from one aspect of the practice into the other. So they're not separate entities. Uh, So regarding an ecological thinking, for me, it's about turning our attention to the things that we are surrounded by and examining how they came to be and how they evolve. And that can range from human relationships in space about materials materials that are used, about practices of building, extraction processes, etc. Um, but uh, I'll share with you a thought that I very much identify with, and it's not by an architect, but it's by a political scientist, uh, John Tronto. And she says that, quote, rather than thinking of buildings as things, Thinking of them in relationships with ongoing environments, people, flora and fauna that exist through time, as well as in space, changes the approach fundamentally, end of quote. So this really for me embodies all the values that architecture should be responding today, and um, it speaks very much to what I think of ecology. Thank you. And I'm, I'm very glad uh, that you shared all this valuable um, information and text beforehand and had the chance to read more about uh, what you're interested in and your research. Uh, now, I would like to move a little bit the conversation and ask you more specifically uh, about the School of Infinite Rehearsals, because I think we've covered uh, many things, but I would be interested to know Uh, Since you have been engaging many years with all the questions that uh, were brought forward by this program, what prompted you to apply? So I read the call at EFLUX in the middle of a quarantine. and um, This was last year. (laughs) Yes, last year, quarantine number one, and in Zurich, actually. And uh, I just found that it resonated with so many of the questions that my work has been asking for some time now. 
And so for me, it was this unique opportunity to ask those questions, but in a conversation with a group. And that was not a group of architects, but a multidisciplinary uh, perspective. And so I increasingly, I am finding that we are in a moment where human and more than human processes are so entangled that in order to make sense of it, it's really necessary to bring voices uh, from different fields together. And so that's what the School of Infinite Rehearsals represented for me. And also speaking about the lockdown, the fact that we um, live in a certain kind of isolation from other people, uh, I think... Um, being having the um, the opportunity to spend some time with other people in a physical space also uh, must make a difference. So during during these six weeks of the program, how did you see your practice merging with the collective one? So I think it was a very organic process, and I think uh, the workshop that you organized, Mirto, uh, for us in the beginning. Uh, really helped also to get there. Um, now, in terms of my own practice and what we collectively developed, so I work a lot with water, as I mentioned in my own PhD research uh, on the thermal baths uh, and natural resources in Greece at the end of the 19th and 20th century. But uh, somehow, our, through our collective discussions here at AIR, Uh, we found that water embodied values about ecology and about our respective practices that we all identified with. So uh, it kind of like became not the common ground, but the common medium, the common liquid. <laughs> and um, I brought in on my perspective the mineral quality of water, which is also what uh, I'm writing about um, for the forthcoming publication, uh, because water um, obtains all its uh, healing properties by coming into contact with rocks. So again, this is where things get tied together, uh, whether this is magnesium or other minerals. Um, so by looking into bodies of water collectively and me through my own research on the mineral, I, I found a way to also look at how uh, this mineral quality can generate environments or architectures, infrastructures and economies uh, through also conversations we were having with uh, the group. I see. And um, thank you for participating in the workshop that we did with Manolis that ended up by uh, with you creating altogether a ritual where water was involved. So from the first day, water was there for mm -hmm. you. And uh, we we're really glad to be part of that process. Um, in order to further expand on this collective research, you decided to travel together to the very edge of Greece to visit the biotope formed by the two Prespes lakes and I'm curious to know how did you make this decision collectively and what were your findings there? Um, so as you've probably witnessed it was a long process also vetting out different sites but we um, 
in a way created a list of sites that had uh, for us um, properties around water that were we wanted to investigate and look into further. Um, but uh, about Prespes, so we we collectively, let's say, defined uh, a, s- a number of hypotheses about the place and um, what Prespes represents, what we think they're about, how qualities of water are manifest in the in this site and what they generate. So when we got there, uh, we were to test out those hypotheses. And um, I think one of the main uh, decisions about going there is that, you know, Prespes kind of like represents this f- frontier and this edge and uh, Boundaries uh, between different countries are defined in the water, uh, aside from the fact that it's this very rich um, ecosystem. Um, But what else we found there, um, I mean, personally, I I was very fascinated with um, this idea that uh, although there is this uh, boundary that um, is not clearly, uh, you can't see it, there's also, you can feel it in the chemistry of the water because different countries use different fertilizers, for instance, that are all draining in different parts of the lakes. So in a way you can tell the borders through the, ke- the different chemicals that are found in the water. And also there's different geologic relationships that I won't get into because I'm writing about <laughs> it. So I don't want to spoil it. <laughs> but um, I Let think... Let it be a surprise. Yes, each one of us sort of looked at different elements there. And also I I wanted to treat the the trip also as a, um, as a journey. So for me, it wasn't just about going to Prespes, but uh, making stops along the way. So I stopped at uh, Thermopiles uh, with Lito and uh, Kamenavurla and Smokovo and Meteora. So, you know, it was also transversing different bodies of water from Athens all the way to the north of Greece and back. And you made these stops in order to visit uh, certain thermal springs that exist in these places. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've heard so many stories about Prespes and uh, I would really like to visit that place very soon. Um, I'm wondering, and you tell me, have you ever visited a site where you didn't have to do something on it or with it. I mean, working as an architect for many years, how was it for you to visit a site without a particular end goal? (laughs) (laughs) So in a professional practice sense, (laughs) I have never visited a site with an end goal um, as a research project. I mean, of course, I've, I've traveled a lot and I visit sites for my own interests, but nothing like this trip that we undertook as part of a residency program. So um, for me, it was extremely liberating (laughs) to be there and have this ability to observe and to research, but without the um, pressure to generate a project with, you know, a timeline. Um, So I also decided to do something that 
I to not do something that I typically do, which is not to sketch, but to rather observe and also collect uh, specimens there. Breaking the old habits. Yes. <laughs> Great. Um, I think I know the answer to the next question, but I'm still going to ask it. What did you bring back from Prespes? Rocks. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And beans. True. <laughs> True, beans too. Uh, what was there with the beans? What happened? <laughs> so, um, what became like increasingly uh, very strong in all conversations was that uh, the cultivation of beans around the lake. And uh, for me, it was a big question as to why beans. So, I kept asking this question to everybody that we met. Why beans? Why beans? And, you know, we've, we've had like very interesting conversations about how at some point were monocultures were uh, really uh, pushed in Europe. They somehow thought, okay, beans are good for this terrain. So people started to cultivate beans. They became successful. But also beans uh, take up a lot of resources. So they may not necessarily be the most, the best thing to cultivate there. It's just that um, they became a way to to use the land and uh, secure profit, etc., etc. So, you know, I think through ask, if you see something, I think, in a site that is dominant, I think it's worth asking <laughs> why it's there. <laughs> and you brought back uh, some delicious beans, actually. True. Uh, really glad to have tasted them. I think that's the, the perfect ending to this discussion. Uh, but before we close, I would like to know what are your plans for the near future? Um, so as we, I, you know, we discussed, I'm still writing my PhD dissertation and it's really about airs, waters and places around Greece. So I'm also hoping to get to visit more sites now that things are opening up again. Um, so, yeah, I'm writing this uh, PhD at the Institute for the History and Theory of Architecture at um, ETH in Zurich. But in parallel, I have my architecture practice where I'm working on a couple of projects that are residential, but also one public project that will start soon. And that engages both water and geology and ecology. So I'm hoping that some of these ideas and directions we're talking about will find their way also in built form. Well, thank you very much uh, for this discussion on airs, waters and places. I know we share this common interest in the Hippocratic Corpus and mm -hmm. I'm very glad about that. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much, Marto. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you want to listen to more conversations, please subscribe to our channel. You can find more about the UNASSE residency program and each participant at www.onasses.org. This series is produced by UNASSE. Thanks to Nikos Kolias, the sound designer of the series, and to Nikos Liberis for providing the original music intro theme.